Hey, what's up? It's episode 109, Pain Points of Wealth. It's the first podcast of the year. Took us a little while to get going, but man, oh man, there is a lot going on right now. Europe, emerging markets going through the roof. Interest rates dropping like a rock, yet the Fed says they're going to keep rates higher for longer. Who's right, the bond market or the Fed? Every economist telling you we're still going into recession, yet employment is strong, inflation's coming down. Well, we're going to give you our two cents on everything today, give you a blueprint for how to look at the economy, how to look at the stock market this year. And we got tons of questions from you, the listener, over this holiday season. We're going to answer your questions today to make sure you're on your path to financial independence. Check it out. We got an awesome initial show for 2023. Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod. Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. Well, you know what? The oldest adage on Wall Street that I know is don't fight the Fed, but I think we should tack on another saying to that and don't trust the Fed. You know, it seems like everything they say, the opposites happen or they've done the opposite. What do you guys think? Well, you know, Chris, I think that's one of the things that I call noise, right? So the Fed is noise. You know, they don't always follow through on what they say they're going to do. And it's crazy how these analysts, you know, a year ago didn't believe anything the Fed says. And now it's like, oh, it's gospel. The Fed says we're going to raise rates and keep rates higher for longer. You know, I'm not listening to the Fed. I'm listening to the bond market. What about you guys? No, it's a great point. Like, why do these analysts and strategists, why do they blindly believe in, you know, so an organization shouldn't believe in. I mean, if you think about the Fed, they're just reactionary, right? They reacted to the fact that rates went up. And now, you know, we're looking on the ground floor here. Real estate's plummeting, right? Uh, oil prices have come down a lot. Copper prices have come down a lot. Corn prices have come down a lot. Inflation is dropping like a rock. And we somehow believe that the Fed isn't going to capitulate and lower rates. It just blows my mind. It's like, just follow history. They don't follow through. Well, you know, right? It's always the way it is, guys. I mean, you look at the markets, it's it's the difference between reality and expectation. That's where prices are. And misery loves company. So when you have 60% of the economists predicting recession, it's comfortable to be there. You don't want to be the outlier. You don't want to sound like this Pollyannish person that I see on CNBC and, and Fox Business every week, Chris, you know, like your brother. Yeah, well, you know what? Let's let's talk about it. I mean, I think we're being a little harsh to the Fed. They're not the only ones. They're in good company. Let's talk about the strategists, the analysts and the economists that have said that we're going into recession. So let me ask you guys, how are you liking this recession so far that we're in? <laughs> I know it's awful. We all have jobs. Uh, wages are going up. You know, it's, it's, it's a terrible recession. Now, no, kidding aside, right? For, for some people, it's always hard in America. So I don't want to discount that. But it is remarkable with all the economic, economic data being like relatively strong that all these like, quote unquote, professionals, experts are coming to the same conclusion and they might be dead wrong. Like all of them might be dead wrong about a recession. It's very likely we might not go into recession. Now. Well, but, but the thing is, that's what the financial media is about. It's about entertainment. It's about making you tune in. It has nothing to do with helping you to make money. And that's why investing so hard is so counterintuitive. All we have to do, guys, is look at the best performing part of the portfolio year to date and the last six months happens to be Europe and the emerging markets. Who'd have thunk that when everybody and their brother knew this time last year, Europe's going into recession. Oh, my goodness. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine. There's going to be an energy crisis. There's no way you can do business without energy. Well, guess what? These stocks are near their all-time record highs. 
Yeah, if you look at it last year, 70% of the markets around the world outperformed the U.S. <laughs> you know, so, you know, people were so focused on the U.S. And, I, you know, we heard this was conventional wisdom. Oh, don't put your money in Europe. Don't put it in China. China's never going to come out of lockdown. You're right. They're people. The second largest economy in the world, and they're never going to come out of lockdown. Well, guess what? It turns out they are coming out of lockdown, and it's very good for the global economy. Who would have thought that? And if, if you read the news last year, nobody was talking about that. What an awesome opportunity it was going to be when you had the second largest economy in the world ready to buy lots of stuff like we were when we came out of the pandemic. It's crazy. Well, I can tell you guys one thing. After talking to our clients, which I talk to every month, um, none of them are excited about putting money in international or emerging markets. All they can talk about is, hey, you know, Bitcoin's at a discount. Tesla's at a discount. <laughs> and uh, you know what? It's true, but it's still trading at 400 times forward earnings. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times when you invest, you like to look back and, and you know, hey, I had dinner with a, um, a CPA that we do a lot of business with and a lot of his clients. And he said, hey, Bob, I got this really wealthy client that was trying had, I tried to get him to meet with, with you and Ryan and Chris. Uh, but he wanted to do it on his own, and he went out and he put a ton of money into Tesla, and he got slaughtered. But great news, he's following the paying capital management strategy, and he's you know buying more while it's down. I'm going, what? I said, that's not our strategy. We don't buy what's down. We buy what's valuable, right? That's why last year we kept talking about China. We talked about emerging markets and, and the international markets because on a valuation basis, they were a lot cheaper than our market. So you don't buy something that's down just because it's down, right? You got to do your homework. Well, then that's the biggest mistake we're going to see investors make, in my opinion. We saw this, right? History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. We talk about that a lot, the Mark Twain quote. But when the tech bubble burst, you had magnificent rallies in the NASDAQ and tech stocks. In fact, 10 or 12 of the best trading days ever happened when the NASDAQ burst because you'd have these huge debt cat bounces and all the winners of the last 10 years, like Microsoft, Amazon, you name it, but you know, eventually they just kept going lower. And the reality of it is you could see the same thing here now. Like, why is Bitcoin all of a sudden viable? Why is it at 21,000 again? Like Jamie Dimon said, it's like pet rocks. You know? <laughs> so yeah, I think you gotta be really careful here. And that's a mistake I think investors are gonna make. They're gonna buy the winners of the last 10 years on this fake out bounce. Well, you know what, Ryan? I don't think that's really fair to pet rocks. The guy that invented the pet rock made a million dollars. And you know, that potentially could be the total market cap of Bitcoin in a few years. Well, you know, that just shows to show you guys that there's a scam born every day. You know, they just did another Madoff series on Netflix, which I would recommend everybody watch again um, because there's a couple of interesting tidbits. But the thing I picked up from it was I'm looking at the screen, watching the show in the background, they have the financial news on, and the Dow was at 8,000. You know, it's when we started paying capital management. You know, we're at 34,000 on the Dow. How did we get from 8,000 to 34,000 when things have been so terrible over the <laughs> last 15 years? Which is amazing because if you think about the last decade in the market, we had this raging bull market. And when people look back in history, like, oh, it was easy to make money then. No, it wasn't <laughs> because nobody was invested. People forget after the financial crisis happened, nobody wanted to be in the market. It was the most underinvested bull market of all time. And that's what investors do. They always go with their most recent experience. And that's what I think investors are going to miss again now is they're going to buy all those technology names. They're going to put in Amazon, Google, Apple because they're tried and true. And what they're going to find out is not tried and true anymore because the dynamics have changed. And this happened, you know, no one wanted to own those technology stocks after 2009 when it was a good opportunity. Now no one wants to own international when it's a phenomenal opportunity. And this is where investors always get it wrong. Well, you know what I think it's like? I think it's like when the market sells off at a discount, it's kind of like the insurance company is selling you fire insurance while the house is on fire. That's a good point, Chris. 
You know, guys, I mean, let's face it. The markets are always climbing this wall of worry. There's always something to be concerned about, right? You have inflation. Yeah, it's down, but it's still high. You have interest rates that are up, and the Fed's going to raise rates again at the next meeting in February, maybe only 25 basis points, but they seem hell-bent on continuing to raise rates. Um, so we have all these bricks that keep getting put into the wall of worry, even though we take some bricks down. Some of these bricks, you know, turn from headwinds into tailwinds. For example, you know, we're in the third year of the presidential cycle. Very rarely in history do we have a market that doesn't rally uh, from the middle of the fourth quarter of the previous year, you know, through the middle of this year. And so far, what happened? Market bottomed in October, right? We have gridlock in D.C. Everybody forgets about it. You know, they didn't get the Republican red wave, but they did get gridlock. So we got that going for us. And I'll tell you the other thing is expectations are very low right now. And the markets don't care about relative good or bad, do they, guys? They care about whether things are getting better or things are getting worse. And I don't think anybody can anticipate any worse than they feel right now. <laughs> and we have every economist predicting a recession the odds of getting that recession are very low, ironically, and the data speaks to that. We've got a strong labor market. We have inflation coming down. Wages are staying strong. You really got to invest with common sense here. Don't believe what the quote-unquote experts tell you. They're usually not right. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 109, Pain Points of Wealth. Everything you hear on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially, literally at any stage of your journey. Chris, Bob, and I now have a collective 75 years helping individuals just like you with your planning and investing. But if you're thinking to yourself, I want a more hands-on approach. I don't know where I am in my financial independence journey. If you saved over a million dollars every week, we run a free total financial master plan where we'll go through everything with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. We'll build you your own personalized financial portal, give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial life. We're going to look at taxes and fees. We'll go through a deep dive of every investment you own. See what fees are hidden in your portfolio in those annuities, insurance products, mutual funds. Show you how to reduce that cost. Optimize your portfolio for taxes. Show you how to properly diversify your money. Did you get hit hard last year when markets are down? Or are you sitting in cash earning nothing on your money? Paralysis by analysis. We'll put together a full investment game plan. Show you how to grow your wealth, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. And we're going to look at income. If you're close to retirement or retired now, we'll put together a full income plan so you don't run out of money. Simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. All right, it's the tipping point. This is where we pinpoint the pain point. Of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And guys, over the holidays, and since we were a little tardy getting our show started for the year, we've actually had a big inflow of questions. And if you have a question for myself, Bob, or Chris, simply go to bebullish.com slash questions, submit all your questions there, we'll answer them. But we have a couple good ones that I wanted to answer on the show today. And the first one that comes in is from Dan. He writes in, Bob, Ryan, and Chris, I've listened to your podcast for the past one to two years. That's a real fan. And several times heard you say how you don't like bond funds. With that in mind, what do you propose in their place, especially when stocks are down? If individual bonds are the choice, how do I invest in those by myself? Well, hang on a second, Rye. I just want to say that I've never been tardy to the podcast, so I don't know what you're talking about. I'm always here on time. I'm always ready to go. But, you know, with regards to bond funds, we should probably remind our audience why we don't like bond funds. Um, you know, and I refer to them as the Trojan force of the bond world for a couple of different reasons. And I thought we could go through that real quick. Yeah, you know, number one, Chris, you don't know what's in your bond fund. A lot of times they can sneak in 
lower quality bonds by prospectus, you know, kind of juice the yield to make up for all the costs that they incur internally. But the biggest problem is, you know, you can't make money in bonds. Oh my God, shock, 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 right? Yeah, you, you, know, you can't make money in bonds. All you do is make interest in bonds, right? Because you're making a loan, you're lending money, you're getting your money back with interest. So if you can't mon make money in bonds, why would you put yourself in a position to lose money in bonds? You want to take risk? Buy equities. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like a lot of people buy annuities and other insurance products that we make fun of on this show, um, which become very expensive hedges. Meanwhile, the idea of owning bonds in your portfolio is kind of that is like that insurance, right? Because if you own bonds and you know, no matter what the price does, there's a date in the future you get your principal back. It's a very cheap way to hedge your portfolio and you're getting paid to do it, right? You get that cash flow and you don't give up liquidity because that's the other thing. A lot of times you can put your money into an annuity. The money's locked up. They'll slowly pay your money back to you over time, that quote unquote income for life. But with a bond portfolio, if your bonds keep coming due, you never give up your principal and you protect your principal. I call that heads you win, tails you win. Yeah, so owning individual bonds, we absolutely recommend. If you don't have enough money to hire an institutional bond manager like we do, right? There are big minimums, and I understand the frustration. Then don't even take a chance of investing in anything in an individual bond that's not guaranteed by the government. So stick with treasuries or certificates of deposit. Um, you know, the bond market is fought with risk. It's a huge market, and it's not really there for the amateur or the neophyte. You know, use a professional at all times. Beautifully said, Bob. Beautifully said. Question coming in from Carolyn. She writes in, what percentage should I have in my portfolio of assets that protect against inflation? Currently, I'm holding 7% in a natural resources ETF, but is this enough to do the job? Well, ideally, almost your whole portfolio should be an inflation hedge. Am I got mine, guys? Well, I agree with you, right? Because you look at the average balance portfolio last year, it lost 17 to 20%, right? Our portfolios were down half of that amount because our whole portfolio acts like an inflation hedge, right? How do you inflate inflation hedge bonds? Well, you own bonds that come due. So your downside risk is you get all your money back with interest. You have to own equities because equities can pass on the cost of, of, of inflation. So, and you also want to have some hard assets in your portfolio like real estate and commodities. You really got to factor in inflation at all times because guess what, guys? It's always there. It's insidious. It's hidden, but it's real. Well, and that's the beauty of an investment portfolio is your income is going up over time. And again, this is where like when you own an annuity or a fixed income for life, it doesn't adjust with inflation. But even in a bad year in the market, when you have your income going up, that's the beauty of a diversified portfolio. Uh, another question that came in from Carolyn again, uh, who asked great questions is if you have a port if you have a large portfolio and can comfortably live off the dividends, just kind of what we just talked about, do you have to have any bonds? I'd rather leave a legacy for the next generation and don't want bonds to get me there. Um, well, you guys tell me what you think. Well, you know, first of all, the thing about owning all equity producing stocks is it's an equity. So just by definition, it's volatile with the market. So if you're retired, you know, and the market pulls back 20, 30%, it's the old adage goes, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. The question becomes, how many years do you have to make up that 30% deficit? No, that's a great point, Chris, because, you know, one of the things that um, we, we got to witness front and center, right? We had a front row seat last year to volatility, the most, one of the most volatile markets that I've ever lived through. Um, but it was volatile, you know, up and down 1%, I mean, more, more days than, than I can ever remember. But it wasn't wicked downside volatility like we had in 2000 and 2008, where you had two 46 to 50% declines, you know, seven years apart. 
Now, you might say, oh, I was very brave and I could handle it, but I don't think anybody can handle that. So one of the reasons you want to have a more balanced approach is because it smooths the volatility. But here's the biggest reason why you don't want to be 100% in equities. Because when you have a market, let's just take two years ago, right, when we had the pandemic. When you have a stock market that drops and you have a 35% decline in five weeks, stocks are on sale. But what do you buy you know, more stocks with if you're 100% in stocks? Your hands you are tied. bonds in your portfolio. You sell your bonds, yeah. right? You yeah. take um, a nice profit in bonds and you get a good buying opportunity. Yeah, it, again, it, it's a double whammy, right? Because then the mar your portfolio is on less and you have an opportunity to buy when prices are low. And I think that's a great point because the one thing we always talk about and people never think about this, it's not getting all the upside in an up market, right? Think about all the money made in all those disruptive technologies the last 10 years and it all disappeared overnight. It's about losing less in a down market. That's the key to making better returns over time. And ironically, you can actually take less risk and get better returns if you properly diversify, but most of us don't do that. You know, the other thing too that we haven't talked about is, you know, if you have a portfolio that's large enough to produce, live just off dividends, you're probably in a pretty high tax bracket. So, you know, owning things like municipal bonds, which are tax advantaged, you know, you're not just getting, a, you know, say a 5% return on a tax adjusted basis, you're doing much better. Yeah. And the other thing is, hey, look, last year was a record year for dividends. I mean, it was phenomenal. I love dividends. But I don't like buying individual dividend stocks. I don't care how great the company is. That company has a huge risk. It can go to zero, right? Markets never go to zero, but individual companies can. Yeah. So you could have a great dividend payer like I did, Merrill Lynch in your portfolio, and it went to zero, right? So I don't care if it's 5% or 10% or 20% of your portfolio. You wipe that out, you never recover. Bob, that sounds great, but I'm just going to own Tesla stock, even though it doesn't pay a dividend because it's going to go up over the next couple of years. It's guaranteed. Um, but that's just my strategy. <laughs> you always had expensive We're, taste, right? <laughs> that's the best way, part. Can you imagine somebody yeah, followed yeah. that strategy? They're selling off stock down 70% oh. you know, to pay their mortgage this month or to pay their utility bill. Uh, I don't think yeah. I, I'm going to like that idea. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too, is I, and I spend too much time on Twitter these days just because I like <laughs> to hear what the fodder is. And it's, it's pretty scary out there. And you see all these like zealots that just want to own Tesla stock. And they just tell yeah. you for all the reasons why there's nothing can go wrong. And it's like something can go wrong with every company. I don't care what company it is and what goes wrong. You're never going to predict it ahead of time. Like I worked at Merrill Lynch. No one told me that they were leveraging up their balance sheet with these, 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 you know, these mortgages on the other side of the bank. They didn't call me to let me know that. I didn't have the inside track on that. And all of a sudden, the stock went from being in the high 80s to like two, three dollars overnight. So it's just such a foolish strategy. I and mean, it's going to a little bit of a rant here is don't fall in love with any one company and concentrate your portfolio in any one company. It's not worth it because eventually there's always going to be pain to be had. Just remember, guys, bad news comes on the installment plan. And uh, <laughs> when you have something going against you, the news doesn't get better until you're out. Okay, and the last question um, that I want to put in today was from John. He writes in, I have a question regarding P.E. ratios. From watching a lot of Payne Capital YouTube videos, Ryan, you're the smartest. Okay, he didn't say that. I've noticed that you talk a lot about P.E. ratios or price-to-earnings ratios regarding a business. What is considered a good P.E., anywhere from 1 to 10? If you have a business like Ford with a P.E. today of like 5.7, I think it's actually at 6, is that considered a good value, stock or undervalue to invest money in? I heard you talking about Tesla in your last podcast being around 33 times Ford earnings. It's about 25 today and probably not the best time to buy Tesla. Well, I think PEs are a little bit tricky, guys. I don't think you can just say blanketed. There's a cheap 
or expensive PE because sometimes companies can be at a low PE for a reason. Well, first of all, uh, just let me comment on John's comment about you being the smartest. And I agree, Chris, he is the smartest. He has you and I on the podcast to carry him every week. <laughs> we always make it look good, Dad. Yeah, all the help I can get. <laughs> you know, you got a lot of different metrics you can use to measure, um, you know, the valuation of a company. But the only two things that really are really matter are earnings and interest rates, right? As I always say, stocks are the slaves of profits, of earnings, right? Without earnings, without E, there's no P. So the P-E ratio, you know, it's going to vary from time to time. Um, it, it should be higher when rates are lower. It should be lower when rates are higher. But I think you have to measure each company within the industry group. But, you know, to me, guys, it's a waste of time analyzing individual stocks. It's a sucker's game. You know, all you're doing is gambling. Invest in the market. You get a higher probability of success. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 109, Pain Points of Wealth. If you love our podcasts, because obviously you do, please give us some support. Give us a five-star rating if this is on iTunes. You can actually subscribe on Spotify. If this is YouTube right now, give us a like on this episode. You can click the subscribe button and that notification bell to be updated every week of our new content. We will be publishing weekly this year, even though we took a little break in the beginning. But please give us the support. The more support you give us, the more we can do this podcast. We appreciate you. All right, it's the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. Okay, Bob, the energy sector's weight ended the year at 5.5% of the S&P 500. That's up from 2.7% at the end of 2021. Man, the leadership and the dynamics of the market are changing. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, sometimes we get a little wonky on our show, so let me explain what that means. Uh, when you have the S&P 500, it includes about 11, 12, 13 different industry groups, right? You have consumer staples like Procter & Gamble, companies that make soap, you know, staples like Hershey. Um, you have consumer cyclicals, you have utilities, you have energy stocks. Um, and energy used to be one of the dominant industry groups that was weighted in the S&P. I remember when it typically was 13 to 15% of the S&P 500. To see it only at 5.2% actually kind of shocking to me, right? But yeah. it doesn't uh, surprise me that it's doubled in the last year because energy stocks are doing really well. If you look at the earnings estimates this year for earnings on, uh, on any industry, energy leads the way. They have the best earnings estimates. They have the highest dividend yield. And what this tells me, this weighting, is that it's really under-owned. So if you don't have energy, get some in your portfolio. Or better yet, just, just let us manage your money. And it's the second highest dividend, Bob, for the record. But you know what? That's why they pay me the big bucks. Well, I'll tell you the other thing that you know, we talked a lot about earlier, guys, was how much you know, technology is overvalued, communications, consumer cyclicals. Believe it or not, even though they're way down from their highs, they still make up 38% of the S&P. As Ryan likes to say, the S&P is not a diversified portfolio. It's a tech fund in drag. I agree. Still is. All right, Chris. Dividends per share on the S&P 500 were $1.15 a share in 1950. Compare that to $60 a share today. That's a compounded annual growth rate of 6% a year. The average inflation rate over the same time was only 3.5%. This means dividends are growing at nearly 3% more a year than the long-term inflation rate. Hence, stocks are a great inflation hedge. Well, you know what, guys? This is, this is what makes the stock market, in my mind, to be the most viable thing in the world. Because you know, not only does your asset appreciate over time, but you know, you're also getting what I call the consolation prize, those dividends that get paid. So you know, even when the market's down for a given period of time, 
you're still getting that money. And believe it or not, over time, it represents half your return. So, you know, if you think cash is a good thing, you're sitting in cash. That's the only loser. Stocks are the only true winner. Well, it's kind of like a rigged game in your favor, right? Because prices go up. It's because the companies raise those prices, be an owner of those companies, right? That's how you benefit. It's almost like, you know, you talk about you go to Starbucks every morning, get your coffee. Well, you're better off owning the Starbucks stock, you know, be the owner, not the consumer or be both. But clearly you're missing the boat if you're not growing your money over inflation and stocks are an amazing way to do that long term. Bob, large technology companies went on a hiring binge beginning around the end of 2019, right before the pandemic. Google added 57% more employees, reaching 187,000 workers. Well, Amazon nearly doubled its staff to 1.54 million people. Wow, that's a lot of people. Well, as we're recording this, Ry, uh, Google Alphabet just announced they're laying off 12,000 uh, of those 57% more employees. And I think a lot of big companies, especially in, in technology, they're, they're taking a hard look at their profitability. And even saw one research report the other day where they you know, sent a, um, a missive to all the department heads and say, get rid of all your unproductive employees. And I think that's what happened. You know, during this uh, COVID period, we had, a, you know, really had a lack and we still do. Right. We have a lack of, of good quality candidates for the job openings. And a lot of companies kept uh, employees that were not productive because they were afraid they just couldn't replace them. But now the reality is setting in that, you know, you have to be productive. You have to maintain your margins. I mean, Chris, look what we had to do on this podcast. We had to carry Ryan, right, even though he's the least productive of the three of us. And we have to keep him on the show. And, you know, now you and I are having those discussions, right? Things are getting a little different now, and we want to keep productivity up. We might have to let somebody go. You know, Dad, I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to. <laughs> you know, my brilliance isn't in my work ethic. It's in my charm, in my creativity. Um, I was thinking that. I was thinking you're very charming. We can all dream. But, but <laughs> um, well, I'll just mention one more thing, too. I think this is where the media is really deceiving as well. It talks about all these tech layoffs, and it makes you extrapolate that out to the rest of the economy, and it's just not true. You know, these companies are laying off because they way overhired. Meanwhile, we have a major labor shortage in this country that's not going away. I mean, they laid off something like 150,000 people in tech last year, well, we added over 4 million jobs, you know? So, so I think you have to be careful when the media reports this stuff because they don't paint the correct picture. And our bigger problem in this country is we have so many people retiring, leaving the workforce that we're going to have a labor shortage for a long time, even if they're actually laying off in tech. So just something to think about. Chris. How many people are retiring, Ryan? I think I want to add a number to that, uh, to that <laughs> list. Oh, really? You want me to retire now? Well, that's so, that's so, be <laughs> <laughs> so benevolent of you, Bob. Just send me a check for my, uh, to my place in Florida next to yours. All right, Chris. The Secure 2.0 Act has bumped the RMD age to 73 in 2023 and 74 in 2029 and at age 75 in 2033. So basically, um, taking your RMDs out now is getting later and later. A lot of big new tax law changes at the end of the year that you need to be aware of. Well, as you guys know, I don't give the government really credit for anything, but I will give them credit for this. Uh, I think this is a really good thing. People are living longer, uh, so that means that there's going to be more time for those tax-deferred accounts to grow for longer. But you know, this also creates a great opportunity for all of us as investors that are looking to save on taxes for the next generation. You know, it gives you a great opportunity to do those Roth conversions. You know, where you're taking money out of those IRAs paying at a discounted rate 
Um, and moving over to something that grows tax-free. Yeah, and that's the thing. There's so many little things you can do from a tax perspective, and they just got better. Make yourself educated on these things because this is the difference between financial independence and not and having a lot more money in your pocket than the government's if you're just aware, and this is the time to do it. All right, gentlemen, a great first show for 2023, episode 109. If you love our podcast, you like our podcast, even if you're kind of not sold on it yet, Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. You can subscribe on Spotify. If this is actually on YouTube right now, I can like the episode. Subscribe to our podcast. Click that little notification bell to update yourself every week on our new podcast. We appreciate your support that continues to give us the ability to do this. That's it for this week. As always, stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Ryan, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at bebullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Investment is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. 